0: We beseech thee, Almighty God, to purify our consciences by thy daily visitation, that when thy Son, our Lord, cometh, he may find in us a mansion prepared for himself. Through the same Jesus Christ, our Lord, who liveth and reigneth with thee, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. That's the Collect appointed for today, Sunday, December the 19th, 2021, the fourth Sunday of Advent. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along. I appreciate it. Today's podcast is going to be a little bit different. I'm going to read the lessons, but I'm going to comment less on them as we go along as normal. I'm going to do something that's less like a teaching on the lessons themselves the way I normally do, and more in the uh, in reflection on the, um, the theme for today, which is peace, peace. So just so you'll know in advance, I'm just letting you know, and we'll see how it goes here and then probably do the same thing again on Christmas, to be honest with you, and I'm not sure after that. Um, Anyway, so it's been a good week in a lot of ways. We're looking forward to, uh, we're headed to Chattanooga. We're going to be, I'm taping this actually a couple of days in advance because we're headed to Chattanooga for a couple of days um, prior to Christmas, just for multiple reasons where it's easier to go now than it is to go um on Christmas itself so we're going to wait a little bit or oh, we're going to go early i mean so anyway it's been a, a pretty good week not a whole lot going on i didn't feel well early in the week and so i took a week off from the gym and that's always a hard thing for me um i miss my buddies i miss uh, talking to guys like steve green who's the manager and a good friend and just you know these people that i really care about and love uh, and love being with, and so it's it's different for me to hole up and not go to the gym. Um, I've stayed busy. I mean, I wasn't feeling bad. I just didn't feel a hundred percent, and just felt like it was probably smarter not to go. We went last night. We had a great time. We went to the North Carolina Arboretum. They have a huge um holiday light festival there and it was wonderful we had a really good time and and it was just a really nice we had a great evening together and so looking forward to being gone for a few days and seeing some people in Chattanooga and then coming back here and um this we have a party with some friends on on Monday night that uh, I'm very much looking forward to so anyway it's just um kind of a, a good kind of winding down to the end of the year I guess a little bit um Nothing particularly exciting going on. We're just kind of moving through life. And uh, anyway, so it's been that kind of a a quiet-ish week and uh, looking forward to to a little bit of downtime. Um, I've tried to get ahead on my recording schedule, and so I'm looking for a a little bit of downtime that just kind of enjoy being around um, for the week of Christmas and part of the week of New Year, certainly. So anyway, I hope you're doing well, and I hope the Lord's blessing you during this season and giving you some some time to sort of take it easier. That doesn't mean necessarily that you're not doing anything. It just means you're able to spend more time with family and friends and people that you care about. So it, it's sort of – Similar to this idea of peace, I mean, Christmas can be an incredibly busy time, but it can be an incredibly blessed time. And and so, peace, we can think of peace as um, something that it's not actually. I mean, you know, that we can we can think of it in certain sorts of ways, but then we have to realize that we live in a world that that doesn't uh, highly value peace, or it says that it does, but then it does so many things that are destructive of uh, d- establishing and maintaining peace that it's very difficult for us to, uh, to experience that in this world because it just doesn't exist. So our, the peace that we have to be talking about has to be something that comes outside the world. It has to be supernatural, and it, and it is established within us. And then, the, then our goal is to take that into the world, to, to go into the world in peace as we go about our daily lives, and then to bring that peace because we are people of peace— and so we, we teach the world how to understand peace because we start from a peaceful place of our own. And too often now what we do is we allow ourselves to be shaped and moved by circumstances, whether that's political circumstances or whatever it is, um, COVID, whatever. And, and we allow those things to steal that peace. And, and we then don't have it to offer the world. And, and the world desperately needs us to be people of peace in the same way that the world into which Jesus came needed peace. So let's look at the lessons uh real quick I'm going to go ahead and read them to you. But you O Bethlehem Ephrathah who are too little to be among the clans of Judah Bethlehem was a tiny little city. It was the city of David where David was from. Um and so it, it had been established forever that the uh, Messiah would come from Bethlehem because he would come from David's line. And so Bethlehem, though, was, it's not a very large city. It's, it's five or six miles from uh, Jerusalem, and it's, it's not very far away. But it, it's not a place that, that ordinarily catches anybody's attention. And if Jesus weren't from there, about the only thing anybody would go to see would be, oh, this is where David was from. Um, it says, but you who are too little to be named among the clans of Judah from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be a ruler in Israel who's coming forth is from of old. This is Micah 5, 2-5, by the way. Um, And it's speaking of the one like David, who will come from the Davidic line. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. Remember that after the time of Solomon, immediately following the time of Solomon, the kingdom of Israel was broken into two uh, separate kingdoms, the southern kingdom, which was based in Judah, and the northern kingdom, um, which was based in uh, Samaria, and they were conquered about 100 years prior to the southern kingdom being conquered by the Babylonians. And those uh, tribes are what we call the lost tribes, because they didn't maintain their faith traditions when they were driven out of Samaria. So the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. Jesus will be the one who brings them together. The Messiah will be the one, sorry. It, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. It doesn't say that he'll bring their peace, he will be their peace. And, and he will be the one who will shepherd his flock, and they will dwell secure. That should be pushing you back and think, making you think of Psalm 23. That language should. This is the great good shepherd, the one who will be the messianic king. He will be from the line of David, certainly, but there's more to it than that. He will not just be in the line of David. He will be greater than David. And so we, we, he's going to establish and be their peace. The Hebrew word everybody should know is shalom. And it means more than peace, as we'll see in a couple of minutes. In the epistle, we've got Hebrews 10, verses 5 to 10. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, "...sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure." Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it's written of me in the scroll of the book. And, and what he means is, I mean, they have legitimate reason to believe God was pleased with their burnt offerings and sins, but they also have reason to believe there were times when he was not pleased with their burnt offerings and sins because he told, sin offerings, because he told them so. Uh, there are multiple prophets through whom God says, I don't want or need your sacrifices. That's not the important thing here. And and so what we see is is that that they had that God gave them an accommodation for sin. How do I deal with sin in order that our con- covenant with one another not be broken by my sin? And so God gave them an accommodation, and that accommodation was the sacrificial system. It wasn't a license to sin. However, as prosperity increased, they could afford to sin more because they could afford more sacrifices and offerings. What he always wanted, always, always, always was our sacrifice of ourselves. And so here, when this one comes and says, behold, I have come to do your will, what he's saying is, I've come to sacrifice my life to do your will perfectly. I lay down all claims to myself, and I, and I only pick up your claim. That's all that matters to me. So yes, I have a body and I have a life, but it's dedicated completely to you and to doing your will. So have your pleasure in me, And I'll empty myself, which requires him not to be emptied in an Eastern philosophical and religious way, but to be filled with God. And so that's the reason Jesus speaks of things like I'm the vine and you're the branches is because we have to always be intimately connected to him through prayer, study, meditation, all that stuff, in order that we don't lose our connection with him. And we don't let the world shape us and mold us. So he, when he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings, back to the reading, and burnt offerings and sin offerings, parentheses, those are offered according to the law, then he added, behold, I've come to do your will. He does away with the first, the sacrificial system, in order to establish the second Covenant. And by that we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. That's the Hebrews 10 reading. And then in the gospel is Luke 1:39 to 55, and we're going to hear Mary's great song, which we call the Magnificat. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste after she was pregnant, went with haste into the hill country. This is three months into her pregnancy, uh, to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth, her cousin the wife of Zechariah, the mother of John the Baptist. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby, John the Baptist, leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, and she's filled with the Holy Spirit because what she proclaims next is prophetic and true. Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy, And we were told John would be filled with the Holy Spirit from the time of his conception. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And we have no earthly idea how Elizabeth might have known what would have been spoken to Mary. Probably there was a lot of gossip, would be my guess. But she, Elizabeth, believed this was spoken by the Lord in a way that even Joseph didn't initially believe. And what was spoken to Mary, Mary believed from the beginning, unlike Elizabeth's husband, Zechariah, who asked for some sort of proof. And Mary's response to this wonderful greeting from Elizabeth is this, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. I mean, he, he's a she's a woman who has gone through much in her very short life because she's had a visitation from God, and then Um, gotten pregnant, and her husband put it in his mind to divorce her because of this virgin birth thing that she was talking about. He knew that he wasn't the father. He didn't initially believe that God was the father, though, and that's the reason he was going to put her away quietly. She says, but she says, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. I'm a nobody, for behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. And she's right. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. You know, to hear Mary's Magnificat, to hear this song, to, to, to think about the joy of this woman, this young woman who is going to be a mother. only that, She's going to be the mother of God's child. And she can only have great expectations for what this child will do and what this child will be based on God's promise. However, does she have in mind... All that he will suffer and all that she will suffer as well with her son. <clears throat> his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent empty away. He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy, as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to His offspring forever. And what she's saying is, is that that He will be the full, this one is the fulfillment of all our hopes and dreams, all the expectations, all the promises God has made to raise this one up who will come, and it's my child, and yet. There will be great sadness in all of this. Mary sees reversal of all things and and, and how it, it must have gone for her to watch the persecution that her son suffered from the religious leaders of the day who should have been the ones acclaiming him. And yet, and yet, they rejected him. He came to his own and his own knew him not. It, it's it's a painful kind of thing, but, but we know that ultimately that it, it accrues to our benefit as Christians, those who were born outside time and space and born outside of Israel in the house of Israel, we Gentiles, who were formerly separated from God, now that dividing wall of hostility has been broken down, and we are brought into the covenant, and we who were at enmity with God now are at peace with God not because of who we are or what we do, but because of the sacrifice of Jesus. It all begins with the incarnation of Jesus. See, he had to come into the world. He had to to be like us in order to redeem us. In the same way that that he speaks of as the serpent was raised up in the wilderness at the time when the plague of the serpents broke out and the people were dying from um, being bitten by these fiery serpents, Moses is instructed to make a bronze serpent, put it on a stick, and hold it up, and anybody who looks on it, which is faith, right, um, will be healed. You've got to believe that that's good enough, and that's all that you need to do is gaze upon this bronze serpent, and you'll be healed from the wounds inflicted by the fiery serpents. And Jesus says, it'll be like that. I've got to be lifted up in the same way. And and so they're healed from the the attack of the serpent by looking at a serpent. And here we're healed from sin our own sin by looking on a man like us on the cross who has lived a life without sin in order that we might be reconciled to god through his righteousness and his blood shed on that cross it's a powerful powerful thing uh, jordan peterson who has had a an incredible impact on the world an incredible impact on young men particularly and he's a psychologist clinical psychologist up in canada and and so many young men have have watched his youtube videos and his teachings and everything else and they've been uh they've been able to get off the dime and move forward with their lives he's changed a lot of lives by his teaching and and he he says that this whole story of jesus which he's not completely convinced of is the greatest summary of all the myths and hopes of mankind this dying and rising god and and so he's transfixed by the idea of this but hasn't yet fully accepted the truth and the reality of it that it that it's real and that he did bring about and establish this peace that micah in that first prophecy said that he would establish and he is that peace and you know, it's peace is that word shalom. It has a much greater meaning than just peace. It's, the, the, it's derived from the root, which is shalomut. Um, is a word for perfection, actually. It's completeness and wholeness. And that's what Jesus came to bring. And we've been separated in the garden in Genesis 3. We were separated from God by our sins. We, we hid ourselves from him because of our sin. He still sought us out knowing that there had been sin. He still sought Adam and Eve and looked for them in the garden, and they hid themselves from him. So then the curse after that sin established that there would be a separation between us and the animal kingdom. There's also a separation between us and us, because that separation is expressed most clearly in Adam's response to God about what have you done, and he says... The woman you gave me gave it to me, and and I ate. So there's a separation there in in that Adam tries to separate himself from the woman you gave me, and from God by blaming both of them for his own failure and his own sin. And I never do that. <laughs> but it separates us from God. It separates us from one another. It separates us from the animal kingdom. There's a curse on the, on the uh, earth that, that our relationship with the animal kingdom is never going to be the same again. And our relationship with the earth has changed because now the earth will no longer yield its seed only by the sweat of our brow. And so all these separations mean that we are so far from wholeness or completeness that we can't, begin to imagine it because it's the only reality we've ever experienced and so when we can't even imagine the peace the shalom that Jesus comes to bring because he comes to heal all those divisions and yet we don't see the fullness of that established and we won't until the new creation it's a powerful word, shalom, and we we cheapen it by, by saying, well, you know, everything's okay in my life right now, so I'm at peace. No, it, it means more than that, as I've discovered in the last year when, when Will had the accident back in March, you know, the first day we certainly had no peace, and, but, and but yet... God came in a powerful way and established a peace for us. And we didn't get a phone call that first night when the neurosurgeon had assured us that would be a best case scenario would be that he would call us back and say, I need you to authorize me to do some more surgery. And then we didn't get a call at all, not about a surgery, nor about a death. And after that, I learned something about peace that I had never known before. And that is that transcended circumstances. I knew that God was in charge and that he was good. And that was enough. The One of the things that, that I think we can easily overlook is a teaching in Judaism that says Shalom is actually the name of the Holy One, the name of Israel, and the name of the Messiah. And and it's important that we think about that. If you remember, the, the city of God is called what? It's called Jerusalem, which was originally where Melchizedek, the priest to whom uh, Abraham made tithes, is from and and so it means it's from Shalom Jeru Shalom Jerusalem, it's from that word Shalom. It's, it's a city of peace, but the the first part of it Jara um, can mean things like dual, but it also can mean flow, and it's the place from which peace flows. And we see that in Ezekiel's grand vision in Ezekiel 47, where the river of God which brings life, flows from the temple to the Arabah, to the desert and, and dead places, and then out to the sea. And the belief is that then it will ultimately, whenever this happens, this, this messianic belief in Judaism says is that, that that is a messianic prophecy of the end times in the New Jerusalem and that water of peace that flows out from the temple, giving healing wherever it goes flows through the Arabah and to the sea. And what they say is that at that time, that flow of water coming from the temple will turn all the water on earth sweet. It will flow into the Mediterranean and take away its salinity, the saltiness, and then do so all across all the oceans in the world and all water will then be made sweet. That's the way they interpret that. And then we see that same vision in Revelation, John sees the same thing. He sees that same flow of water from the city of Jerusalem going out into the Arabah and into the sea. And, and what that is indicating to us is that will bring peace to all the world, that everything will be restored, everything will be restored to its proper balance. And there'll be no shortage of, of drinking water. There'll be none of those kinds of things. It, it, it heals the curse it heals everything there and so that's why Jerusalem would be a place from which peace flows God's a God of peace and has been since the beginning when we see in the beginning the the uh, everything was formless and void there was this chaotic um, environment and from that chaotic environment God takes that chaotic environment and brings peace. He puts the waters where they belong and sets their boundaries. And he, he puts the, the, everything where it belongs. He brings order from chaos. And when he does, there's this, with that chaos, this primordial chaos, there's a, a sense of, there's a fearfulness in chaos, and in that particular chaos. And so then God puts everything in their proper places and boundaries. He sets the birds in the sky, and the, he puts the the beasts of the field where they are, and then the wild animals, and he does all these things exactly where they belong. And, and when he does, he brings order, but it brings peace and peacefulness. And when his work is finally finished, when he's put people there who will be his representatives on the earth, who will have dominion over the earth for him— and they're created in his image, then there's a perfect peace because God also has representatives on earth. But he, but he doesn't watch from a distance. He's there with them, walking in the garden. And so that peace is established, and it was our job to maintain the peace. And then we know that only at the time of Noah, when the, uh, some of the angels actually came to earth and, and messed it up, and then we became so corrupt that God couldn't stand it any longer. And so what did he do? He restored chaos, judgment. The, wa- the waters covered the face of the deep again. Everything was formless and void. You couldn't see any landmarks anymore because everything, water covered the earth. We're back to that primordial chaos. And then what does he do? Then he, he has the waters retreat again. And everything changes again, and order is restored. And what does he do? He hangs his bow in the clouds, and we call it a rainbow, and it's fine to call it a rainbow because that's what it is. But the word, actually, in Hebrew, in Genesis 9, is his battle bow. And he says, I'll never do this again. I'm never going to flood the earth this way. And he doesn't. And that's exactly what we see in Revelation, is, is that he doesn't do it by flood. He does it by other means. But now we know that that peace will be established when we see that bow in the cloud we know that god's that, that, that this is over it's not going to happen again it's an important word and an important concept piece and it's the concept that is the theme for the fourth sunday of advent and and so we see this again and again and and in psalm 85 david says let me hear what god the lord will speak for he'll speak peace to his people to his saints but let them not turn back to folly. This is, what, he, what this is is an appeal to the Lord for salvation to come to his people in a time of distress. And what it does, it points to the past and says, in, in times of old, this is what happened. Hey, we're, we're calling out for you again to do this, but don't let us turn back to our folly. You, you have to bring peace. The, we can't do that. You have to do that. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet, righteousness and peace kiss each other. Those things can sometimes be opposed to one another because of our sin. God's righteousness has been violated, and that's got to be atoned for. That sin has to be atoned for, and that's the point of the sacrificial system, and and the, the The giving of the proper sacrifice then is intended to reestablish peace with God by atoning for the sin that caused the division. And so when righteousness and peace kiss each other, that's an extraordinary moment. And the Jewish belief is this, by three things the world is preserved— by justice, by truth, and by peace, and these three are one. If justice has been accomplished, so has truth, and so has peace. What we would say is, what is justice for humankind? Paul says in Romans, we all deserve to die because all have fallen short of the glory of God. And so we all deserve, justice would say, what we deserve is death. So if justice has been accomplished, so has truth, and so has peace. Our justice was accomplished at the cross at Calvary when Jesus offered as a willing sacrifice his life for ours in the grand bargain. But it was really not a bargain because it was God's plan from before the foundation of the world. And it's at that cross that truly righteousness and peace kiss one another and justice has been accomplished, so has truth and so has peace. The truth about us, the truth about sinful humanity, the truth about God and his love and his righteousness, which demanded this horrible thing happen, but his love, which caused it to happen, and he is our peace. It's an amazing statement, and then God is just so good to us, and he has done so much for us. All these things that we couldn't do ourselves, and in fact, we didn't even want to do ourselves. We had never undertaken to do such a thing for ourselves. One did, and his name was Jesus, he is the one in whom all our hopes reside. And when Isaiah told us who this one would be, who would be our peace, he said this, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to behold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and from forevermore. So peace isn't established simply because God is love. Peace, it also involves things like justice and righteousness. It's not sloppy love. It's a love that is actually, as as I just read to you, that Jewish definition, that the three things the world has preserved, justice, truth, and peace. These three are one. If justice has been accomplished, so has truth, and so has peace. We know that judgment is real. We know that truth matters. And we know that if we believe those two things, and that we believe Jesus accomplished all of that, then he is our peace. So not only did Isaiah say that, not only did Isaiah speak about the importance of peace with the work of Messiah, um, it bookends the life of Jesus, this idea of peace. The angels come to the shepherds and they say, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Peace among those who, with whom he is pleased. doesn't say peace with everybody. it's a specific group of people who will have that peace. Those among who he is pleased and with whom is God pleased. Those who believe in his son. Those who believe that Jesus was the incarnate son of God, who died on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins. And who agree with him that he alone is worthy, worthy of resurrection, worthy of receiving a throne. So that peace is established through justice and truth. So that's the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Is peace is what the angels are wishing. Then in John 14, after the resurrection, that night, Jesus comes to his disciples behind locked doors who were there before fear of the Jews. They're not there in peace. They're there in fear. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. It's important. That it's my peace I give you. Not as the world gives do I give you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. That's Jesus' wish after the resurrection. The first words he speaks. The first word he speaks is shalom. But it's not worldly shalom. It's got a different definition. It's got a godly definition for this shalom that Jesus gives them. He says, my peace I give you. Not what the world gives, but what I give you. And what he's saying is, I'm not of the world. I'm giving you God's peace, because I am God. And then, before that, what he's told us is this, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. We'll just unpack that for a second and a half. What would that actually mean, that the peacemakers are the sons of God? They're the ones who are like him. They're the ones who are like God. So what does that make God? That means God is a peacemaker. And Jesus, the ultimate statement the ultimate verification and validation of the, of the belief that God is a peacemaker is, is that he died on the cross to make peace. And so when we are, are in our lives are attempting to make peace and we're being peacemakers in whatever capacity is given to us to do so, then we are becoming like God. And we are children of God when we do that. So, we have the right to become children of God by believing in Jesus. We'll have life in His name, and we're given the right to become children of God. Well, once you become a child of God, then the way you live reveals something about Him. It reveals something about your Father, and peacemaking is one of the chief ways we're intended to do that. So, if we're not making peace, if we're sowing seeds of division, then. We are the problem, and we are not expressing the character of God. But we have to do so in truth and in justice. Those two things have to go along with being peacemakers. We can't compromise truth or justice in order to establish the kind of peace Jesus came to establish. We can have cheap peace by cheap grace. But one of the ways in which we bring peace into the world is in our own lives— The most simple and basic way we establish peace is we forgive in the way he forgave us, which is exactly what he told us to pray in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against you, uh, against us. We've transgressed against him and we've received forgiveness and therefore have peace. We're intended to do the same. Paul says, how do we do this? How do we do this? We do it in the same way Jesus did, in the same way that that the writer of Hebrews told us Jesus did. And he says, sacrifices and offerings you've not desired, but a body you've prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Therefore, I said, I have come to do your will, O God. And, And that's exactly the attitude Paul says we're to take. About our lives, once we have had the peace established with God that Jesus celebrate, that Jesus establishes, and we celebrate in our worship and in our lives, because our lives are worship. We celebrate that it has already been established, and we affirm that peace, and when we do, we affirm his sacrifice to be for sin and that God received the sacrifice, that it was acceptable to him. So we know what an acceptable sacrifice is to him, and in Hebrews, we're told what was not acceptable or pleasing to him, and so what he does want is exactly what Paul says In the beginning of Romans, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Your spiritual worship is presenting your body to God in the same way the writer of Hebrews says, you have prepared me a body, therefore I said, behold, I've come to do your will. That's a living sacrifice. He says, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what's the will of God, what's good and acceptable and perfect. And remember, one of the things I told you about shalom, the the Hebrew meaning, would would include this idea of perfection, completion, and wholeness. And so if we want to know what is the will of God, which is exactly what the, what, um, The writer of Hebrews said, Jesus says, I've come to do your will. Well, in order to do his will, I've got to know his will. But the only way Paul says that you're going to be able to do that is by the transformation of your mind, by the renewing of your mind, and that by testing, you may discern what's the will of God. In other words, you've got to know. You've got to know the word. You've got to know what justice is. You've got to know what truth is. And then you've got to do those things. And if you do those things... Then, then you're bringing peace. It may not look like it on a daily basis. When you bring justice and truth into the equation and in your conversations with people, if you're truth-telling to them, it doesn't always bring peace, but you see it with Jesus at the Samaritan woman at the well. When he tells her, you people worship, you know not what. Oh, and by the way, go get your husband. I mean, those don't sound like words of peace. When you tell people that you, what you believe is completely wrong, you don't even know. I mean, you're, you're deceived, is what he said. And then he says salvation comes from the Jews, and they hated the Jews. They believed the Jews had gone off the rails and that they were the real Judaism. So when he looks at that woman and says, hey, you believe you know not what, and salvation comes from the Jews, he has indicted her whole life. He has shaken it to the core of its foundations. And then he says, go get that guy. And She confesses once he reveals it to her. And she believes. Truth established peace. Doesn't feel like it's going to establish peace, and sometimes it doesn't establish peace right away. But the reality is, is that the peace that I've got to maintain more than any other peace is the peace between me and God. And it has to be based in those two things. It has to be based in truth and justice. And so if, I, if I'm if i not telling you the truth for the, for the sake of a cheap peace between the two of us, then that I'm failing to maintain the peace that I really need, the peace that comes from Him, because I've not told you the truth. And truth is that important. It's important that we always keep these things in mind, that we're pursuing peace, that the purpose of truth is to establish peace. That's what we always have to do. Because the first work of the Holy Spirit is to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment, right? So those things all still matter. And it's not pleasant to be convicted of sin. And sometimes if you come and call me out on something, it's not going to establish peace with us immediately. It may take me a while to the point where I can actually hear that and receive that. Doesn't mean we shouldn't tell it. It's important that we do. It's important that we be truth tellers, but it's also important that we be truth receivers. Even when that truth is not pleasant to us at the moment. But if we would have peace with God... We have to be those two things. We have to be truth-tellers and we have to be truth-receivers, but we have to be truth-tellers with one intention in mind and one only, and that's peace. We have to be making peace by telling the truth, not scoring points. It's important that we take the attitude of Jesus, who, in spite of the fact that the people who reacted to his proclamation of truth was bad, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It's important that we never lose sight that the ultimate goal is peace.